I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside sources. Inside sources. Inside sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome to the expanded Inside Sources, hour number two. Great to be with you, as always, from 1 to 3 p.m. every weekday here on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson and as always, I, I hope you're ready to, to dig a little deeper, think a little bigger, explore things just a, a little wider and broader, challenge your assumptions just a little stronger than maybe you have in the past, and of course, uh, always to disagree just a little bit better. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. In the wake of the verdict yesterday in the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, a lot of things uh, have been said and things are being analyzed. And I wanted to go to one of our inside sources, uh, District Attorney Sim Gill, uh, to get his perspective on not just what happened yesterday, but more importantly, what comes next and how do we make sure that we stay with these questions a little longer? This is not a moment. Uh, this has to really be sustained in order to get some forward movement. Uh, Sam, thanks for joining us today. It's always a pleasure, Boyd. Thank you. Wonderful. So as you look forward, not just back, uh, but as you, you look at what happened yesterday and uh, where we are in particularly here uh, in Utah, uh, what's on your mind? What have you been thinking? Oh, we got to get to this next. You know, I think, first of all, I think it's really important to recognize what a historic moment yesterday was, because it was a, a not a not only just a finding of guilt there, but it was an accounting in a public way for a community that has been raising those issues and concerns. It was done in a very compelling way with the way the uh, the evidence was marshaled out. And while the focus continues to be the issue of police brutality, it also implicates broader issues of our criminal justice system and the inequity that's there. And then from there, a broader issue for us as a society. That's what I really liked about your opening. You know, we have to think a little bit more bigger and a little bit more broader and test our assumptions of how we find ourselves at this moment. Because if we don't do that, Boyd, what's going to happen is every about 25 or 30 years in our history, we have these moments of crisis. We all come together as policymakers and we make commissions and committees we get, gather the information, we set out the proposals, and then we don't do the hard work of actually implementing or asking the right questions, and then we repeat the cycle over again. 
And I'm hoping that uh, we are at a watershed moment in our history where we can actually make some sustainable long-term gains and talk about issue of uh, racism and yeah. systemic bias and these issues. And so there's an opportunity here. Yeah, so important. And I'm so glad you, you mentioned the, the hard work and heavy lifting of implementing. Uh, you know, I, I'm one of those who kind of cringes a little bit. We've had so, I and mean, we could give out blue ribbons for blue ribbon panels. Uh, yes. And uh, it's it's time to get to the hard work and the, the, the deeper dive conversations. Uh, now, we know that uh, the Governor Spencer Cox signed a number of uh, criminal justice-related uh, reform bills today. Uh, as yeah. you looked at that, uh, what, what are the ones that we all should be thinking about or paying attention to? Well, I think I think the uh, what really came out of this last legislative session, as you'll remember, last year we sent out 22 proposals to really lay out an invitation to start this conversation. Everything from substantive changes in the law to training and process. And I think what you're seeing here today with the signing of bills is really talking about the recognition that we can do better. So, for example, House Bill 237, which focuses on people who want to do self-harm. Does it really make sense for the state to step in and help them facilitate that self-harm when they're not a danger to anybody else but themselves? And so that's an important uh, introduction because it allows law enforcement to do what we would call a strategic or tactical withdrawal. Uh, from that situation rather than escalating that. Uh, The additional bills that focus on mental health uh, uh, issues, as well as uh, training, uh, increasing training for law enforcement, data sharing and data collection will give us some uh, strength to start being more transparent and institutionally be more accountable. And so these are all good positive steps in the right direction. But that is just the beginning of the conversation because there are still larger questions to be asked about how do we change culture, how do we change practices, and how do we balance the competing interests here? Because what we have is that we have a a law of profession which wants to serve its community and is engaged in an inherently dangerous profession, but at the same time, sometimes the practices and procedures that we have are not open and transparent to the community of citizens who we ultimately work for. Yeah, and that's so important. And I think one of the things that will be interesting, and I want to have you come back and spend a, a deeper dive on uh, on this in terms of that important balance point that you just mentioned, that if we if we have our, our law enforcement, you know, have a, a laundry list of, of checklist items they have to go through, or, or if they find themselves hesitating or vacillating, uh, which could put them in harm's way or others in harm's way, uh, finding the, the balance point in all of that. So we, as you said, have the transparency and the accountability that we also have our law enforcement folks in a position of strength to do what they want to do in terms of serving the community. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, we have to recognize that uh, this is really about broader issues. You know, yes. I, I, you, know, I've, you know, I've developed a hypothesis that when our public policymakers fail to address the issue of economic justice, political justice, public housing, education, uh, then those public policy deficits manifest themselves as crisis in our community. And, uh, and, and, and as policymakers, we have disproportionately looked to law enforcement to be our crisis managers 
when in the application it impacts communities of color and poverty. So that's not, yeah. uh, you know, that's just an observational thing. So if we recognize that, then what are the steps that we're taking? Because we can't overlook the fact that African-Americans and people of color disproportionately are represented in our criminal justice system. Right. And so how do we get there? And what are the decisions that we're making that are uh, uh, making that reality uh, come to fruition? And these are the hard questions I think we have to ask in an open, honest way, not in an yeah. accusatory way, but in a problem-solving way so people, we can have the kind of equity and justice and fairness that every citizen in this country deserves. Uh, fantastic. Sim Gill, uh, District Attorney, uh, appreciate your insight. And we're going to continue this conversation uh, because just in this one trial, I think we encapsulated everything from from law enforcement to criminal justice reform to addiction and, and community and economics and the whole thing, and uh, all of those need to be addressed uh, as we move forward. Sim Gill, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, boy. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Great insight there from Sim Gill. We're going to go ahead and step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back, uh, Maya Jaradot will join us, uh, a Jewish woman participating in Ramadan. Some fascinating insight coming up next. Stay with us. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor, Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.